What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Do you have a question about the Catholic faith? Maybe something that you just can't get a satisfactory answer about, you know, why does the Church teach this, but it doesn't teach this thing over here? We can explain all that for you on today's program. <clears throat> Excuse me. Here is our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. If you're listening outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. We love to get them. The address is ctc at ewtn.com. Our uh, producer, Charles Beery, is with us, as is uh, Matt Kabinsky, our phone screener, Jeff Burson on social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there right now. Put your question in the comments box, if you would, please, and then Jeff will see that. He will, uh, that is, after you hit the send button. you got to do that first. Then Jeff will see it. He will uh, shoot it to us here in Studio One, and we will... Uh, Go about our business. I'm Tom Price. Glad to be back with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? You know what? I'm doing great. How are you, my friend? I'm doing decent. Thank you. Out of town for a couple of days, unfortunately, for a funeral uh, back in Missouri. And it was it was kind of funny. I'll share this little quick anecdote, and then we'll, a- anecdote, then we'll get on with the show. About a month ago, we were in Cape Girardeau, and we met uh, the bishop there, Bishop Edward Rice. He's the uh, bishop of the Diocese of Springfield and Cape Girardeau, which is the whole lower third of the state of Missouri. Very nice to meet him like a month ago. Mentioned EWTN. He's a big fan. And then um, we just happened to be back in Cape Girardeau on Monday, and we said, well, well, why don't we drop in for the Mass? It looks like there's one at 515. Turns out he was back in Cape Girardeau for uh, the the uh, feast day there of um, the Cardinal, whom I'm thinking of, feast, feast day on, on, on Monday. Anyway, you're blanking out. Blank. Ah, that's okay. Anyway, he was back there at the church, and he saw us, and he, he, he sought us out at the end of the Mass, and he said, Oh, Tom Price, it's good to see you. Are you stalking me? <laughs> I just thought that was the greatest. That was the greatest thing in the world. Anyway, so a shout out to Bishop Edward Rice. Great to see him again. I'll, I'll think of that feast day in just a minute here. Here is an email that we have from Maureen. Dr. Anders, I am an OCIA or RCIA director in a small rural parish. One of our candidates who is seeking full communion with the Catholic Church recently realized that her husband will need an annulment. I saw the disappointment when I told her she must wait to receive the sacraments. Any thoughts there? Um, yeah, a couple thoughts. Um, w- one is she could explore with her pastor the possibility of living as brother and sister with her husband until such time as their marital situation is resolved. Uh-huh. And, uh, and whether that would enable her to move up her reception into the church. I'm not sure about that, honestly, but it's something to explore. Um, and uh, But in terms of the disappointment, 
yeah, I mean that's palpable. That's real. I, I'm I'm highly sympathetic to that. You know the the but the desire to receive communion is appropriate and meritorious, and that that sense of anticipation and 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 suffering and, and the the sense of loss that that itself can be sanctifying, right? I mean, any time we can identify with Christ in our own interior crosses, then we are growing closer to him. And it's, it's not like she's deprived of grace. It's not right. like she's deprived of Christ. She's not even deprived of a certain kind of belonging to the Catholic community. As a candidate, she is in an order in the church that, you know, recognizably Catholic. So, um, you know, she's she's not she's not locked out of the kingdom of heaven or anything. And, and, and that, you know, for whatever reason in divine providence, it may, it may have to delay her reception. But um, that'll make it all the more special when she's finally fully received. Absolutely. Hey, we do appreciate your email, and we hope that it's helpful for you. Here's an interesting question that just came in from Brian watching us on YouTube. Does transubstantiation also happen in other denominations when they take communion besides the Catholic Church? And if not, why not? Sure. I appreciate the question. Well, uh, you have the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist whenever a validly ordained priest consecrates using the proper canonical formula. And to be a validly ordained priest, you have to be ordained by a bishop who has valid apostolic succession. And of course, Catholic bishops have valid apostolic succession, but so do uh, the Orthodox bishops in in the, both the Oriental and the, uh, and the, um, uh, and the Chalcedonian Orthodox churches. And so uh, you can have the real presence of Christ in those communions. There are also situations where you can have a schismatic Catholic priest or bishop, so someone that was validly ordained as a Catholic priest, who has since left their obedience to the Catholic Church and gone off and joined another group. And because they're a validly ordained priest, they have the power to confect the Eucharist, and as long as they have the proper intent and canonical formula, they could do that. So that leads to kind of some ironic results, like, for instance, that Martin Luther was a validly ordained Catholic priest. So even after he left the Catholic Church, he could validly consecrate the Eucharist, even though subsequent Lutherans could not. Okay. But in most Protestant denominations, they're not going to have the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist because they don't have, they don't have valid bishops with valid apostolic uh, succession. Very good. By the way, the, uh, the saint I was trying to think of was uh, St. John Henry Cardinal Newman. Oh, okay. Was, I didn't uh, realize that his feast day was... It was on Monday. Well, I missed that one. So there you go. Interesting question here from uh, Vincent. Does God have a pronoun that we can use when referring to him? I was having a discussion with my sister last week. She has little to no hope for and told me she feels everybody judges her. I told her there's only one person that can judge her, and he is not a person. That got me thinking, how can we describe God to others? Okay, those are, those are two different questions there. One is, is there a pronoun that refers to God? And right. the second one is, how can we describe him to others? Uh, well, you used the pronoun, <clears throat> and yeah. sacred scripture and tradition uses the masculine pronoun in reference to God. Sure. Not because God is biologically male, but that's the traditional formula. Okay. Um, in terms of how you describe God to others, <clears throat> it really depends on who you're talking to and what you're trying to communicate. I mean, if you're just dealing with an atheist and you're trying to establish the existence of God— <clears throat> then then you, you want to describe God in philosophical terms as the first principle. Okay. Right? And and if you want to if you're gonna to talk to a, a Christian about the identity of God or someone that you're inviting to consider the Christian faith specifically, then you're gonna talk about God as love 
and the communitarian expression of that love in the Blessed Trinity, the second person becoming incarnate in Jesus Christ. Uh, Vincent, thanks so much uh, for your email. Hey, phone lines are open for you right now. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion on this Thursday afternoon. It's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on this Thursday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, or perhaps you'd like to explain what is keeping you, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic, love to hear from you at 833-288-3986. Lines are uh, filling up right now, but we do have a couple of openings for you at 833-288-3986. EWTN. While we're getting those calls screened, let me tell you about something new from EWTN Publishing, a blue-collar answer to Protestantism, Catholic Questions Protestants Can't Answer by John Martinoni. John highlights the flaws in Protestant teaching using common sense with simple, clear-cut explanations. He lays out the reasons why Protestantism as a whole and in its individual parts is illogical, as uh, uh, Dr. Spock would say, Captain Spock, Mr. Spock, and lacking in both common sense and biblical sense. You'll find concise, candid, power-packed arguments from Scripture, history, and just plain rational thinking, along with 30 questions to ask Protestants about what they believe and why. This book is a game changer, a blue-collar answer to Protestantism, Catholic questions Protestants just can't answer. It's available now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. We're going to get to the phone lines in, it looks, well, why don't we just do that right now, if you're ready, uh, at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Corey, a first-time caller from Peoria, listening on the Great Covenant Network. Hello, Corey. What's on your mind today? Hi there. Thank you so much for answering my call. Sure. My question is about the succession of the 12 original apostles. I understand it was very important that there be 12 after Judas um, died. My question is, why do we not see, besides Peter, a succession of those that particular number, the 12 apostles that were original? Um, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Well, um, we, we do. <laughs> At least we have for some of them, in, in that we have the, we have the, the patriarchal seas of Christian antiquity, um, which do trace their origins to particular apostles. Now, the, many of the apostles' uh, histories, personal histories, are lost to us. I mean, some of them are preserved in legend, but we don't honestly know what happened to every single one of them. And and it's not necessary that we do. I mean, it, it's enough to know that they preached the gospel and presumably ordained successors. The fact that we don't necessarily have a line of succession from each one of them is immaterial. I mean, all you really need to preserve apostolic succession is one of them. Ah. Right, just one. Okay. Um, and uh, as, a, as an analogy, if you actually trace the succession of most modern Catholic bishops— um, they they all go back to one early modern Catholic bishop, not because he's the only one that ordained anybody, right? Right, but he just ordained an awful lot of people, and mm. and and so much so that his progeny, if you will, ultimately came to represent almost the totality of the Catholic uh, episcopacy, um, and uh, 
you know, just it just is just that was just the genetics of apostolic succession, the way it worked out, just because of the math, right? And so all you need is really one apostle. Now that granted, they replaced Judas with Matthias, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and so he's in the line. But I don't know the why you you don't you don't have to have okay. a record of every single apostle in order to maintain succession. Is that helpful for you, Corey? Yes, it is. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this uh, beautiful Thursday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Going now to Lisa in Cleveland, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Lisa. What's on your mind today? Hi there, um, Dr. Anders. I was wondering why the daily Mass format is different from the Sunday Mass format. Yeah, thanks. It's because Sunday is a feast day. Uh-huh. It's, the, it's the original feast day. It's the most important feast day in the Christian calendar, the celebration of the Lord's resurrection on the first day of every week. And so we have a special liturgy to hallow the Lord's day. Uh, mass that is said during the rest of the week is Holy Mass, and it's beautiful and wonderful, sure. but it's not it's not specifically set aside as the celebration of the Lord's resurrection. Now, there are segments of the Catholic world, particularly the Catholic, the Eastern Rite Catholic churches, that don't have a historical tradition of celebrating daily Mass. They have other prayers and devotions that they celebrate on a daily basis. Uh, Sunday's always been the major Christian feast. There you go. Lisa, thanks so much for your call. Here's an email from Suzanne. Recently, you answered a question about time travel and the Mass in a way that seemed to contradict the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Could you please explain the time travel question using the language of the Catechism, paragraphs 1362 through 1368? Hang on. Got to pull out the old Catechism. Making the big reach. She said 1362? uh, Through 1368. Especially the concept that, quote, the Eucharist is thus a sacrifice because it represents or makes present the sacrifice of the cross, because it, it's its memorial and because it applies its fruit. The sacrifice of Christ. Oh, yeah. I got, I got you. No, okay. I got you. I got All you. Right. Okay. Fantastic. So um, everything I said is consistent with what you just cited from the Catechism. Okay. Right? Okay. And the, the position of the Catholic Church is that, yes, the Mass is a, the mor- memorial of Calvary. It's also, um, and I'm going to... I hesitate to use the pronunciation. You you use the word represent. Yes. And that can be spelled, sometimes it is in English, R-E hyphen present. All right. Now, interestingly, in the typical edition of the Catechism, which actually is French, mm-hmm. it was composed originally in French, and in, the, well, the typical is Latin. If you look at the Latin text and the French edition of the Catechism, there is, there's no orthographic indication that would that would suggest a difference between represent and represent. That's unique to the English translation. Really? Yeah. So it's just representare in Latin and and uh, représenter in French. Okay. And and so th- some American Catholics have the idea that 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 little uh, phonetic emphasis suggests some special mode of presence in the Mass mm-hmm. where the one sacrifice of Calvary is somehow mystically made present again. All right. And that, that's precisely the position that I have taken issue with based on the teaching of Pope Pius XII in Mediator Dei. It was a 19th century theologian named Odu Cassell that postulated this very hypothesis that when you go to Mass, what happens is you are mystically translated to Calvary. And so there's no distinct oblation in the Mass. It's just sort of a time portal to the one sacrifice of Calvary. 
Um, now, that idea has actually a lot more in common with the Calvinist doctrine of the divine presence than it does with traditional Catholic theology. The, the standard position in Catholic theology, and this is made explicit in the Council of Trent, is that the relationship of Calvary to the Mass is as follows. The same victim who died on Calvary is present in the Mass, but okay. he's present in a different manner. So I on see. Calvary, he's present in a bloody manner. Mm -hmm. In the Mass, he's present in an unbloody manner. So th that difference of mode mm -hmm. means that the sacrifice, while specifically the same, is numerically distinct. distinct right? It is, a, it is a numerically distinct sacrifice. The Mass uh -huh. is offered for its, its own purposes. It's its own distinct oblation. And the mode of presence is different. It's different. All right? Um, there's continuity because it's the same victim. But he's there in a different mode. And the time travel hypothesis suggests that he's there in the same mode. Whereas Trent says emphatically he's there in a different mode in the Mass. Um, the same priest is present, Trent says. So the mm -hmm. priest who offered the sacrifice at Calvary, that would be Christ himself, uh -huh. is also present in the Mass. That's Christ himself through the, 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 the work of the ministerial priest. And it's offered for the same reason, for the reparation of sins and reconciliation of, of the humanity with God. Mm -hmm. right? So there's definite continuity between the Mass and Calvary. And the Mass is also the memorial of the death and resurrection of Jesus, in that through the double consecration of bread and wine, uh, visibly displayed, displayed before us in, representa in representative way, mm -hmm. uh, we see the separation of Christ's body from blood, right? But that's only in representation. In reality, Christ's blood is not spilled in the Mass. It is therefore a memorial of Calvary and one that contains the actual same victim. But it is not, it is not the same sacrifice numerically. Suzanne's uh, email closes by saying, Is it fair to say that we don't travel back in time, but we do offer ourselves at each Mass with the one eternal sacrifice of Christ? Yeah, that is true. That is true. That is true. That okay. is absolutely true. We right. do offer ourselves. And, and Christ, of course, ever lives at the right hand of the Father, to offering himself to make intercession for us. And so our participation in Mass, this is the way... Cardinal Ratzinger puts it, who mm -hmm. becomes Pope Benedict, he says, we enter into Christ's own self-oblation. So our self-offering is a share and a participation in Christ's eternal self-offering to the Father. Love that. Thank you so much, uh, Suzanne, for your email. It's called a communion here on EWTN. We have a couple of lines open. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-EWTN. 3986. Joe is in Texas listening on the EWTN app. Joe, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, yes. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I was, I actually called in a couple weeks ago and I just got a call back um, from EWTN, but I was in a pretty deep discussion with a friend of mine who's trying to discourage me from getting into ministry with the church and how he was trying to discredit the church in and of itself. He's a Protestant. And he's like, well, I got a bachelor's degree, and I went to Bible college, and I know the New Testament and the Old Testament inside and out. And um, he was basically telling me, he, he what, uh, there's a few different things that he was talking about. One, he was trying to discredit that Peter was actually the leader of the Church, and that uh, Jesus didn't actually mean he would be in charge of his Church and there'd be one Church, that as long as we believe in Jesus, then we're a part of this mystical church, but there's not necessarily a visible church. Um, that was one thing that we were trying to discuss. Second thing was the validity of the Eucharist, which would, he was like, well, you can get the Eucharist anywhere. You don't have to go to the Catholic Mass to get the Eucharist. You can get it at any church. And I'm like, I tried to explain to him, I'm like, that's not the body and blood of Christ. Um, 
if you're getting at a Protestant church. And then uh, second of all, he or third of all, he's like, well, my mom left the Catholic Church after being Catholic all of her life, and, and she grew up Catholic, but now that she's filled with the Holy Spirit, she knows Jesus way better than she ever did as when she was a Catholic. And so um, also, you guys shouldn't be doing rituals and sacrifices, because Jesus came here to abolish that, and um, here you are doing rituals and sacrifices and going against what Jesus wanted us to do, which is just to believe in him. Okay, yeah, thanks. These are all great questions. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nail each one of them if I can. It may have to carry over to the other side of the break. But before I do, so if, I, if I'm talking to a Bible college grad fundamentalist who knows the Bible backwards and forwards and has memorized the Old and New Testament, as your friend uh, seems to, to claim, the first thing I'm going to ask him is, well, what makes you think, before I even deal with any of these questions, what makes you think that the Bible is the church's rule of faith? So you think you know Christianity because you know the Bible. Well, where did you get the idea that the way to know the content of Christian faith was to study the Bible? And he's going to say, well, it's the God's Word. It's the infallible Word of God. Uh, to which I'm going to answer two things. One is, how do you know? And the second one is, and so what? What of it? So it's the infallible Word of God. Let's, let's assume for the sake of argument that we agree on that point. That's not the same thing as saying it's the rule of faith for the church. God can give you an inspired text and not intend that text to be the sufficient and unique guide to the Christian life. Let me give you a hypothetical example. Could God inspire an infallible cookbook? Sure he could. Good, sure. Right? If I had an infallible cookbook in my hand that God had inspired, this is the work of the Holy Spirit, teaches you how to make a heavenly meringue, would it follow that God intended that heavenly cookbook to tell me how to run my marriage? No. Like, the, the very form of the text would, would militate against that. You would see, no, this is about a cookbook. This is a cookbook. It's not meant for that other thing, right? It's not going to tell me how to fix my Toyota Camry, all right? And that's exactly the situation that we're in with the Bible. God, God did give us an inspired text, but nowhere in that text and nowhere outside of that text does God ever indicate that the purpose of the text is to give you a comprehensive account of the Christian faith? So that assertion, this is what the Protestants call the doctrine of sola scriptura, the mm. assertion that the Bible is my rule of faith, the Bible is where I get my information from, is an unbiblical assertion. Because the Bible doesn't teach it. In fact, the Bible teaches something very different. When Jesus made provision for handing on the faith, he never said uh, to the apostles, here's a book. Make sure you study this book and memorize the Old and New Testament. And then, boom, you'll, have, you'll know everything there is to know about the Christian faith. Didn't do that. Instead, what he did is he, he appointed authorized individuals and said, go make disciples and teach everything I've commanded you. That was all oral tradition. Jesus didn't write anything down. And I'll be with you to the end of the age. That's a promise of divine assistance till the end of the age. So this is the constitution of the church as Christ set it up, saying it's going to last till the end of the age. And when the apostles, like St. Paul teach the faith, they advert to that oral tradition. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the tradition that I receive from the Lord I hand on to you. And so if you want to discuss the content of the Christian faith, you must actually advert to the rule of faith Christ gave us, which is the oral tradition of the church and the authorized teaching authorities, right, which yeah. are the apostles and their successors, the mm, bishops and the Catholic yeah. faith, all right? So that, that's where I want to start. I want, really want to go after that sola scriptura business. 
but now, uh, have we got time to go into the other questions, Tom? How much time we got left of the well, break? Well, we have about 30 seconds, so... Right, so let me, let me start with the, the mystical versus invisible church business, okay. okay? He thinks he has everything he needs in the Bible. Show me in the Bible where the Bible talks about a mystical, invisible church. That is an invention of the Protestant Reformation, right? It's nothing in Scripture to that effect. In fact, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, if you find somebody in sin and they don't repent, kick them out of the church. Take them to the church, and if they don't listen to the church, kick them out. Explain to me how you can haul somebody up in front of the authority of an invisible institution <laughs> and then be kicked out of it. Yeah. Doesn't make walking around sense. At all. Okay. We'll come back to the other questions after the break. All right. Uh, sit tight, Joe. We'll continue that on the other side. We'll also talk with Rodolfo in San Antonio, Steve in Wisconsin, Yusuf in uh, Maryland. Two lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. Stay with us. It's Call to Communion. We're delighted that you're uh, with us on this uh, Thursday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Before the break, we were talking with Joe in Texas who has been in conversations with his Protestant friend, who is a, a graduate of a Bible college. Uh, with a bachelor's degree. With a bachelor's degree. Okay, thanks for uh, for the clarification he, he there. He emphasized that point. Yeah, and, and you were beginning to unpack some of the objections. That yeah, this... so his first objection was that you don't need an institutional church because all true believers belong to an invisible association, a mystical association of Christians. And my first challenge to our to our Bible-believing friend was, where does Scripture teach that idea? Because when Scripture uses the concept of church, it has in mind a very visible institution with organized lines of authority. Um, you know, Jesus said in Matthew 18 that you can be brought before the church uh, as a kind of tribunal to be judged, and you can be expelled from the church for unrepentance. Um, in Acts chapter 14, we learn that the apostles traveled to individual congregations and appointed presbyters or priests for them. So these were not voted on by the congregation. These were apostolic appointees. The same pattern is reflected in the pastoral epistles of First and Second Timothy and Titus. Um, Paul says to, to Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was so that you could appoint uh, bishops and elders in each of the churches, you know, and they would have oversight over those communities. Um, when early Christianity ran into doctrinal controversy, they, they didn't point to the Bible to uh, exegete passages of Scripture to resolve their conflicts. They, they turned the thing over to apostolic authority. So we find in Acts chapter 15 that the apostles met in council to decide a matter of theological controversy about whether or not Gentiles had to follow the law of Moses. And they, they said, they didn't say, well, we searched the Scriptures and came to this conclusion. What they, what they did instead was say, well, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you the following rulings. Mm -hmm. Then we learn um, that, uh, that uh, uh, Paul and his companions traveled from Jerusalem uh, to the various churches throughout the ancient world and delivered the, uh, uh, the decision of the Council of Jerusalem. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. Right? So, right. so a centralized authority within the church that had the power to compel the consciences of the various churches. Those are visible institutions found throughout uh, the empire. So uh, th this invisible church business is not found anywhere in Scripture. I'll, I'll tell you where the idea comes from and the way it's changed over time. So in the 16th century, the Protestants had to contend with the reality that they were promoting a novel interpretation of the Christian faith. 
And that was a death knell for any claim to Christian faith. You had to be able to show that you were the same faith as the apostles that had continued for 1,500 years throughout the world. And it was evidently not the case. I mean, obviously, this was a change in the way things were going on. So what they did was they suggested that, well, the real church had always existed, but it was kind of buried. Calvin used the language, the image of it being like cinders buried under a pile of smoke. And so the way he understood his own ministry, he, Calvin the Reformer, was going to come by and blow on the fire, blow away the smoke of papal superstition and tradition, and allow those embers to shine again. So it was invisible in the sense that it was covered over by, covered over by uh, papal superstition. But the original Reformers, Luther and Calvin, did not think that invisible meant, meant not institutional. Right. See, they had a different conception of what invisibility meant. They mm. thought there was an institution, and Calvin explicitly said that there was historical continuity uh, of believers hung, that hung together through the rites of baptism and the Apostles' Creed, which are visible rites. Yeah. Right. But that there were so much papal additions that it was obscured. Right. That's a very different idea of invisibility. The modern Protestant idea of invisibility emerges out of the reality of denominationalism. So in the 18th century, after trying for 300 years to get Protestants to agree on some form of faith, uh, evangelical Protestants in North America and England finally decided they gave up the, the, the effort. They said, there's no way we're going to get everybody to agree on the content of the faith, so let's just get them to agree on a religious experience called being born again. And as long as you have that experience, then we'll count you as a real Christian. And so they took the original polemical idea of the invisible church that the Reformers had used against Rome, and they turn it into a justification for denominationalism. Mm. Calvin himself had absolutely no patience with denominationalism. Luther had no patience with denominationalism. The earliest Protestant thinkers thought the idea of denominations was anathema, and that anyone who wasn't with them was with the devil. And Luther says that explicitly. Mark Edwards, in his book Luther and the False Brethren, details that quite extensively. Um, so th this, this modern idea of denominationalism united in an invisible union or a mystical church is, is an utter fabrication of the 18th century, has no foundation in Protestant history, has no foundation in Scripture. Okay. Um, now, your friend also said that Jesus came to eliminate ritual and sacrifice. Then why did he institute rituals? All three of the Synoptic Gospels indicate that Christ instituted the sacrifice of the Mass with the command, do this in memory of me. Yep. St. Paul, 1 Corinthians 11, for what I receive from the Lord, I hand on to you. Uh, and the word there is, uh, for, is tradition. Yes. Um, uh, if you look at the Greek word, parodosis. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which of you do this in remembrance of me. In the mm -hmm. same way, he took the cup and said, This is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Looks pretty much like a ritual to me. Yep. Right. Instituted by Christ and handed on by sacred tradition. So the charge that Jesus came to eliminate ritual does not seem to hold up. Now, what he did do, and I'll agree with you here, is Christ taught that that admission to the kingdom of God is based on more than ritual. That if you think that you are okay with God merely because of ritual observance, mm. well then then you know you're, you're wrong. You're mistaken. It has to be it has to eventuate in a change of life, an ethical behavior, care for the poor, uh, purity of heart, these kinds of things. That's that's the basis on which we'll be judged. Uh, rituals serve those ends. They're means to an end. They're not ends in themselves. So I agree with you with that much. Um, let's see, your friend also said, well, my mom raised, was raised Catholic, and she left the Catholic Church, and now she knows Jesus better than she ever did as a Catholic, all right? 
Well, I have absolutely no way to evaluate that statement, all right? And maybe it's true, maybe it's false. What I suspect is the case is that this gentleman's mother has a more subjectively satisfying spirituality, right? That, that much I think I would take for granted. And it's true that many people in the Catholic Church do not enjoy a satisfying spirituality. That's true of any religious group, right? Mm. When I was a Protestant, there were large periods of my Protestant life where I didn't enjoy a satisfying spirituality, although I would never have admitted it. If pressed, I would have said, oh, yes, I'm born again, and I have a wonderful spirituality and a deep relationship with Jesus, because that's part of the lingo. Mm-hmm. Part of the communal identity is affirming that you have a walk with Christ, right? So you're sort of, you're, you're, you're required. It's a necessity of the communion that you say these things. They get people up on stage in the first moments of their conversion and have them tell their story to other people. Here's how I came to know Christ. It's built into the fabric of the community. There's a narrative that you come to embrace, right? Can I evaluate the sincerity of that in somebody's heart? No, I can't. Uh, but it's possible that she did come to have a more satisfying spirituality, one that was subjectively satisfying to her. Does that constitute genuine knowledge of Christ? Well, St. John gives us the criteria for claiming to know Christ. He says, if you claim to know him, you must walk as Jesus walked. The criterion for knowledge of Christ is ethical behavior, particularly the virtue of charity. And, and by that criteria, I'll say there, there are Catholics who know Christ well, there are Catholics who don't. There are Protestants who know Christ well, there are Protestants who don't. But it has little to do with my interior subjective religious experiences and everything to do with my outward ethical behavior. Um, let's see, last question. You can get the Eucharist in any church. Why be Catholic? Well, um, uh, no, you can't. <laughs> no, you can't, right? Um so, uh, when Christ instituted the Eucharist, he, institu- he gave it to the apostles and gave them the command, do this in memory of me. Mm-hmm. There is no record in Scripture that Christ ever authorized anyone else to celebrate the Eucharist. No record of it. All right? So, the claim that, you know, every Tom, Dick, and Harry can consecrate the Eucharist has no scriptural foundation, because Scripture never indicates that. Right. So... Who actually is authorized to celebrate the Eucharist? Christ only authorized the 11 or maybe the 12 if Judas was still there. Mm -hmm. The only way we can answer that question with certainty now is to advert to sacred tradition. Because tradition unfolds for us the way the thing was handed down. And what you find from the second century, from the earliest Christian sources outside the New Testament, is the clear teaching that the only people authorized to celebrate the Eucharist are bishops appointed by the apostles their successors, and the priests ordained by them. Okay. Very good. Uh, Joe, is that helpful for you, sir? Uh, yeah, that's really helpful. And I would say I really got him with the whole Catholic Church is the Church. Is I gave him that passage where you are Peter upon this rock. Oh, yeah. I will build my church mm-hmm. and give him the keys to heaven, or give him the keys to bind and loose, and neither the gates of hell will prevail against it. Oh, yeah. And I said, and I told him that, and he got quiet, and I said, and if we look, we pull out religion, but we look historically, that is the only church tracing all the way back to when Jesus was here on earth that has never failed. Yep. Yep. And you got like, it. 
I, have to get back to you on that one. The Catholic Church is true or Jesus is a liar. Exactly. Yeah. Joe, thanks so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Hey, our friends at Salt and Light Radio in Idaho need to hear from you next week. They're airing their 2023 Fall Pledge Drive next Wednesday through Friday. So if you're listening in Boise or Twin Falls or Caldwell or Bloomington or really anywhere, please support your EWTN Catholic Radio Station. Back to the phones now. We'll try to get to as many of these calls as we can. John, a first-time caller in Westbrook, Connecticut, listening on the EWTN app. Hey, John, what's on your mind today, sir? So my question, I, I hope it's simple and straightforward, but I'm a, I'm a little on the fence about being a Catholic and accepting Jesus. I'm indifferent to that. Of course, I accept God and all of the values that come along with that. And my question is, is there a penalty if I'm wrong? If I don't accept Jesus, is there a penalty at some point for that? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So here's the Catholic Church's position on this issue. Um, we think, obviously, that Christ is the incarnate Son of God, uh, came to be the Savior of the world and the teacher of righteousness. And so so even though humans have a kind of inchoate knowledge of God from, from nature and conscience and things of that sort, Christ is the clarification of that revelation. Because it's quite evident that from natural revelation alone, people come up with all kinds of different ideas about how to worship the divinity. And just the shift from, say, Bronze Age to Axial Age religion, you can see just enormous variety in the way people have conceived of their service to the divine. I mean, thank God that most people aren't running around, you know, doing human sacrifice anymore. But that was a pretty live option for most of the human race for an awful lot of its history, all in the name of, you know, acknowledging the god or gods that they thought they discerned from the natural world. So, yes, there's a kind of inchoate knowledge of God from nature. Um, but uh, but Christ is the clarification. C.S. Lewis once wrote that that Christianity writes in capital letters what nature wrote with a cribbed hand. Mm. Um, and uh, now, I think this is my personal opinion. The likelihood, and I don't know you well, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, that when you said I believe in God and all of the things that are entailed by that, that many of the things that you intuit to be entailed by belief in God are likely the effect or have some relation to the fact that you have lived in a largely Christianized culture. So let me give you an example. Perhaps you think, maybe you don't, but perhaps you think that by acknowledging God, you have a moral obligation to look out for the least of those among us. That things like care for the poor and the destitute and the sick and the imprisoned is a moral duty. And that you discern that from your knowledge of God that you have just by intuition. Mm -hmm. Well, I would suggest, actually, that, that what you're probably thinking is an intuitive realization from nature is, in fact, the inheritance of your Christian culture. The reason I say that is when you look at monotheists in earlier centuries before Christianity, in particular the Greeks, Aristotle, Plato, the Stoics, um, they believed in God. They believed in the one God. Uh, but you don't find an ethic of care for the poor. Quite the contrary. You find Aristotle's teaching that some people are naturally slaves and that hierarchies are part of the natural order and a natural good. Um, and uh, you don't find solicitude for the poor or the, or the outcast, certainly not for prisoners and foreigners. Uh, but Christianity comes to the world and inculcates that sensibility into the human race. And so you find, uh, you know, in a tradition like Buddhism, for example, um, Buddhism does not have a historical tradition of social concern in the way that 
developed in Christianity. I mean, there are individual acts of, of charity and kindness, to be sure. Uh, but the kind of wide-scale institutions, wide institutions of benevolence and, and political action that would come to characterize so the Christian conception of human rights is absent from Buddhism and most Eastern religions until the modern period. And in interaction with the, with the Christian world, those uh, traditional religions have shifted their own ideas of ethics. Right? And so they now come, the whole world is coming to reflect a more Christian view of the human person. The UN Declaration of Human Rights, which for most people would see that as a very secular document, yes. was written by a Catholic, Jacques Maritain. Mm-hmm. And it reflects Catholic developments in, in legal thinking from the 16th century. And so uh, I, I don't think you're as far in your intuitions from Christianity as you might think you are. You're, you're actually assuming a lot of Christian content into your conception of God. And I'm optimistic about that, right? So the reason that Christ came to the world was to be the light of the world, to illumine the minds and hearts of men and women so that they could have a deeper and more authentic relationship with God. And the Catholic position is Christ is like a light, right? And he casts that light widely. Now, it's brightest the closer you are to the source of the light. As you move farther away from the source of the light, it dims, but you're not totally in the dark either. And so the moral obligation of every person is to embrace as much of the light uh, as they have access to and to conform their lives as much to that as possible, and ultimately God will judge us at the end of time. So it's not my place to say, yeah, God's going to judge you for rejecting Jesus, but I can tell you that the criteria that God uses to judge us are primarily ethical. You know, do you care for the poor and the sick and the imprisoned? Sure. Do you exemplify that Christian ethic in your life? Um, if there are reasons of your own personal psychology or history that make it psychologically impossible for you to make an act of faith in the Christian God, that won't necessarily count against your salvation or your being accepted. It, it's an impediment, perhaps, but it's not a, it's not a determinative, determinative impediment. Ultimately, God is the judge of your conscience. John, thanks so much for your call. It's called a communion here on EWTN. If you're up uh, early on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for the Fathers of Mercy Hour. This week, Father Wade Menezes discusses St. Thomas Aquinas and the importance of growing in self-knowledge. Without self-knowledge, we can't grow in holiness. Do check it out Sunday morning, 4 a.m. Eastern, right here, only here on EWTN Radio. George is listening in Monroe Township, New Jersey, online, EWTN.com. Hey, George, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, I'd like to ask Dr. Anders um, a question concerning the 30 Years' War. I, I just finished a long book by Peter Wilson about the subject, titled the same name. And his opinion basically is that religious differences started it, uh, politics uh, exacerbated it, and uh, the Protestants won it. You can draw some parallels to the current situation in the Middle East. I hope it doesn't turn into what Peter Wilson said the 30 years was, the worst event to hit Europe uh, uh, until World War One. But anyway, we could discuss that for, for a long time. But I'm wondering, in Dr. Andrews' opinion, who actually won the Thirty Years' War? Okay. Yeah, that's a great question. Now, you just said you finished a lengthy book on the subject, so you're more recently read up on the topic than I am. I have taught the Thirty Years' War 20 years ago when I taught Western Civ and, of mm. course, had it as a student. But I, but I, 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 
you know, I rarely get questions on political history or military history, and so I, I really can't give you any kind of definitive answer um, that would satisfy you if you've just read a monograph on the topic. I mean, it, it, to me, it's evident that the that the the wars of the 17th century were definitely an outgrowth of the religious conflict of the mm. 16th. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, justifications are not the same things as reasons. And and the fact is, the European powers were were always keen to battle one another for hegemony and land and wealth and and status, and uh, being able to add religion to the list of reasons why they could justify that war just made it more convenient to do what they'd always been doing, yeah. you know, um, and uh, uh, and that's that is the legacy of Europe, right? So I mean, definitely there was a split uh, between Protestant and Catholic Europe. It, it it was political as well as religious and cultural. Uh, created a lot of heartache for an awful lot of people for an awful long time, um, and um, and you know you could argue that those tensions continued into the modern period um, and you know were implicated in the conflicts of World War One and World War Two. Yeah, for sure. George, thanks so much for your call. Rodolfo is listening in San Antonio on the Great Guadalupe Radio. Rodolfo, what's on your mind today? Yes, hello. Um, first of all, thank you so much for picking up my phone call. Really sure. appreciate that. Sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, my question is more about um, the deacons and priests. If the deacons have the same um, power of blessing on religious items, if like the same thing as a priest, um, like they like bless an item. Thank you. There, there are blessings that are permitted the deacon to perform in canon law. To be honest with you, I'm I'm not up on all the distinctions. I cannot enumerate for you all the things that deacons are allowed to bless or not allowed to bless. I mean, they they're not the principal blessers, as it were, in the Catholic tradition. The, uh-huh. the, the 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 priestly blessing is the principal sacramental in the church. There are things deacons can bless, and I honestly can't enumerate them for you right now. Appreciate the call, though, Rodolfo. Thank you so much for it. Here is Steve, now a first-time caller from Wisconsin, listening on the Great Real Presence Radio. Hello, Steve. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi. Uh, well, I guess I'll just start with one question. I probably have more, but let's just stick with one. So when I was younger, I kind of thought to myself, I said, hey, if there's a God and there's Jesus, why do I need to accept Jesus into my life to believe in God? Like, can I make a connection to God myself? And it comes down to the Holy Trinity. You know what I mean? The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, I guess, is like kind of like the ultimate authority. And so what, what does it even mean? Because nobody can really explain it to me quite right. Sure. I got you. You got two questions there. One is, uh, if I can come to God without Christ, why should I come to God through Christ? And then secondly, what is it with the Holy Trinity? So let me get to both of those questions. Let me do the first one first. Um, Of course you can come to God without having explicit knowledge of Jesus. Of course, and people have been doing that for thousands of years. People have conceptualized God and sought to relate to God. And according to the Bible, some of them were even righteous in the sight of God without having historical knowledge of the person of Christ. The Catholic position is that the person of Christ is a kind of clarification of what it means to be in relationship with God and provides special means to facilitate that relationship. And they're needful because left to our own devices, people can get involved in some pretty superstitious activity. Uh, You know, to take a very contemporary example, there are people in the world today who believe that God sanctions religious warfare permitting taking sex slaves taken in conquest. And that is a that is a position that you will find ISIS holds this. You know they think if they go conquer places in uh, in Iraq and Syria that they can legitimately take sex slaves among the Yazidi women and then put them on the internet and sell them, and they justify that with their understanding of their religion. Um, 
that's really different from the Catholic position. Oh, yeah. The Catholic position says, you can't do that. Now, they can't both be right. It cannot simultaneously be okay to take sex slaves and not okay to take sex slaves. There is a, there is a proper answer to that question, right? And so the Catholic position is that the incarnation of Christ, the teaching of Jesus, clarifies those kinds of moral issues for us, among other things. It clarifies mm-hmm. other things as well. That is, there is an illumination of conscience that takes place through relationship to Jesus, who, rather than engaging in, in wars of conquest, lay down his own life for those that he loved and that we're called to do likewise. Right? So it makes a substantive difference to your relationship with God, whether you relate to him through Jesus or not. doesn't mean that everybody who doesn't know Christ is lost— just means that they're at an objective disadvantage. And, of course, the foundation of the Church and the sacraments and the teaching of the Church, all those are means that help us to live that communion with Christ and God more, more fruitfully. Now, what about the Blessed Trinity? What is the Trinity? So the Catholic position is that there is only one God. There's one essence of God now. And so we can rightly say there is but one God. Now, when you talk about persons, you know lots of persons. You know a lot of your, your friends and family and so forth. Your experienced persons are that when you meet a single person, that there is usually one human nature attached to one person. Right? I'm looking at Tom Price right now. One guy, one human nature. In God, we have one nature that's divine, but three persons. You say, well, I've never met one nature that had three persons before. That's true. It's unique. It's unique to the Trinity. Um, and here is an analogy. It's just an analogy, so don't press the analogy too hard. Imagine a disembodied intellect thinking itself. Let me explain. An intellect is an agent that has the power of thought. But thought is always of an object. And the thinker is a subject. Now, if a disembodied intellect thinks itself, the intellect is thinking. Yes. And that's what its, that's what its nature is. Mm-hmm. Right? You have the subject doing the thinking, that's the intellect. You have the object being thought, that's the intellect. You have the act of thinking, that's the intellect. So you have one nature, but there are three distinct relations within that one nature. Now that analogy is a Catholic saint named Augustine of Hippo who who thought that one up and said that's, that's a way for understanding unicity and plurality within the Godhead. Now why does it matter to us that there's a trinity? Precisely because we come to the Father through the Son, who relates to the Father as a Son, our union with Christ draws us into his own filial relationship to God. So there's an intimacy to which we're called with God that's facilitated by our realization of the Trinity. uh, Steve, thanks so much for your call. really wanted to get to uh, Yosef listening in Maryland on uh, Guadalupe Radio. Yosef, we wanted to get to your call, but as you can hear, we are out of time. Here comes the music, so please call us back Tomorrow or on the day of your choice, we'll put you at the head of the line, I promise. Steve, uh, very good. And uh, Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. Hope to uh, see you tomorrow right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. We will see you then. Have a great day and God bless.